in the name of Jesus, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful, oh God, because your word is the bread of life. And it is living water. You said to the woman at the well that if you know who I am, you will ask me for living water that you will not thirst anymore. Lord, we ask for living water this morning. We're not interested in the doctrine of men. Uh, We're interested in living water from God because only you can help us uh, this morning. Lord, I commit myself to you. I step into your grace by faith. I thank you for the privilege of delivering your word. I thank you for the blessing that comes to the host for watering the garden. I thank you because I'll be blessed for ministering the word of God this morning as well. Lord, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hope you have your Bibles with you today. How many of you have Bibles here in the house? Wave your Bibles at me. Amen. All right. The front, uh, the front row is devoid of a lot of Bibles. Okay. Wave Bibles at me. And um, um, have you got writing material as well? You got something to write with? You know, whenever you come into the house of God, I always expect to get revelation. Whenever God wants to break through into your life, he gives you insight. He gives you revelation um, so that you can go to the next level. And we're going from glory to glory, from strength to strength. So that means that we're going from revelation to revelation. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I've been meaning to start a new series um, called the, the, the Believer's Personality. The Believer's Personality. And the aim of this series is to help you understand why you act the way you do and how to get Jesus to master your personality and have the nature and the, uh, the, nature and the characteristics of God exhibited through your personality. And today I'm going to set the foundation for that this morning. Let us open our Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 1. In Genesis 1 verse 1 the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, before there was ever any heaven or earth, before there were ever any mountains or seas, before angels existed or man. In the beginning, there was God. God was there. Before time and space, before the stock market, uh, before our careers, before our families, when there was nothing at all, before there was even a spiritual world, in the beginning, was God. He was there. Do you know when time began, God was already there. Everything receives its life and form from him. And everything will go back to him. Epitachus once said, he said, the problem with man is that man does not know what is important and what isn't. Sometimes we lose our way and we lose sight of what is really important. Today, I want us to begin exploring the believer's personality by meditating on the person of God. Because really, we can't really understand ourselves unless we perceive some kind of understanding of God himself. Because we were made in his image and after his likeness. Everything has its source in him. The Bible says in Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him 
and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things consist. All things receive that constitution. And all things are held together by him. He is the source of all life. And all life terminates in him. That is why the Bible says that remember your creator in the days of your youth. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 1. The Amplified Version says remember earnestly your creator. Remember that you are not your own. Remember where you've come from. Remember that you are his property now. Wow. Whether you realize it or not, you've come from God. You belong to him. You are his property. He says, remember him in the days of your youth. And then he uses different pictures to talk about old age. Because old age is coming. You know, it says, before the evil days come and the years draw near where you have, where you say, I have no pleasure in them. When you say you have no desire for physical pleasure. You know, some of us will be thinking about that now and thinking, man, I, that could never happen. You know, but it says the day's coming when you have no desire for physical pleasure. It says the day's coming when your sight is impaired and the arms and hands tremble and your feet and knees bow themselves and your teeth cease because they are few and the eyes are darkened. He says, remember God now. You have come from him and you are going back to him. For verse 7 of Ecclesiastes 12 says that at the end, the dust will return to the ground and the spirit will go back to God who made it. We have come from him and we're going back to him. There is no avoiding God for he is the beginning and the ending. As I said earlier, we can't really know ourselves without really knowing God because we have come from him. In the beginning, God. Let us contemplate him today. Let us contemplate the creator of our life. Let us not fall into the same trap that um, Pascal talked about. For Blaise Pascal said, he said, when God made man in his own image, man has gladly returned the favor. You know, God made man in his image, but then man went ahead and decided to make God in his own image. Let us contemplate God for who he really is. Who is God? Who is this creator of all things? You know, in one sense, he is incomprehensible. For how can the finite comprehend infinity? Comprehend a limitless God. In the book of Job, chapter 11, verse 7, one of his friends, Zophar, speaking about God, was right when he said, Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? The Apostle Paul echoed the same words in the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 33. He said, All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Obviously, you and I cannot comprehend the fullness of God's nature, nor can we know completely all his designs and plans. Yet we get some comfort from the apostle uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12, he says, For now, everyone say now. now. 
For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know also as I am known. Yes, when we enter into the kingdom of heaven, when we enter heaven, we will know God more fully than we know him now. But yet in this time, at this place, we can know some of God because the Bible says we know in part, don't we? Yeah, we know in part. We can know God to the extent to which he has revealed himself to us in his self-revelation. And God does reveal himself. God does not keep himself hidden from us. For in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer says that God in various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets but has in these last days spoken to us by his son through whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he made the worlds. The infinite has made himself knowable in his son. John 1.18 says no one has seen God at any time but the only begotten son of God who is in the bosom of the father he has declared him or made him known. Through Jesus, we come to know the nature of God. The Amplified Version of this same verse puts it this way. It says, he has revealed him and brought him out where he can be seen. He has interpreted him and he has made him known. Jesus has brought God to a place where you can see what he is like. You can see the nature of God. For even in the same chapter in verse 3, the Bible says that Jesus was the brightness of the glory of God and the express image of his person. The Amplified says he's the sole expression of the glory of God. He is the light being, the outrain of the divine. He's the radiance of the divine. He's the perfect imprint and the very image of God's nature. So if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know the nature of God, go to Jesus. I've been a Christian for a long time, over 30 years or so. And I've seen a lot of different things and been to a lot of different churches. And it's amazing how we color our image of God from what people say or from people's cultural perspective rather than the word of God. The only credible image of God, the only true image of God, is the image demonstrated by the life of Jesus Christ. So when we saw Jesus, what did we see of the Father? What did Jesus reveal to us of the nature of God? What did Jesus teach us about God? What picture of God did Jesus reveal that should color our perspective of God forever? Well, look at John chapter 1 together. Let's read verse 14. For before we talk about the personality of the believer, I want us to begin where we should begin. Let's talk about God from whom we have come. For in the beginning, God. In John 1 verse 14, the apostle is writing about the revelation of Christ. And in verse 14, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. 
The eternal Logos, the word that was in the beginning forever with God, became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us for a while. He came into our context. He revealed the nature of the divine and we saw him. He said the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld his glory. We saw his characteristics. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. When he came, when he revealed himself to us, he was full of grace and truth. Verse 15 says, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but what grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. I want you to see something that was revealed over and over again in these few, in these few verses. In verse 15, 14 it says, when the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, he was full of what? He was full of grace and truth. Verse 15 or verse 16 says, of his fullness we have all received what? Grace for grace. The Amplified Version of that verse says, All had a share and we were all supplied with one grace after another and spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing and even favor upon favor and gift upon gift. Wow. It says when Jesus walked in Nazareth and in Galilee, when we touched Jesus, when we communed with Jesus, when we contacted Jesus, we received grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, favor upon favor, blessing upon blessing. He was full of grace and truth. It says the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Well, I have a question for you. If Jesus revealed the Father, if Jesus was the sole expression of the character of God and everything we saw about Jesus was grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, favor upon favor, blessing upon blessing, what is the Father then? The Father is full of grace and truth, isn't he? Because Jesus perfectly revealed the Father. It says the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You know, even in the Old Testament, we see the grace of God all through the Old Testament. But what was in types and shadows in the Old Testament, we see in plain sight in the New Testament. For even though in the Old Testament, the standards for God's righteousness were revealed through the law, but even in the Old Testament, we saw that through the sacrifices of the Old Testament, we saw the grace of God, didn't we? Because God set his standards. You know, the Bible says that the soul that sins shall die. But man could never fulfill the requirements of God's standard. But even in the Old Testament, even though he gave them the law, he also gave them sacrifices. 
So when they committed sin, when they fell short of the standard, they could take a lamb that was without blemish, take the lamb to the priest as a sin offering, and the priest will kill the lamb. And when the blood of the lamb was shed, the blood covered their sins. That was grace. Because when they brought the lamb before the priest, you know, the priest didn't look at the man that brought the lamb and said, you know, have you sorted yourself out? Are you worthy enough? The priest did not look at the man. He looked at the lamb, didn't he? He examined the lamb to make sure the lamb was spotless. And because the lamb was spotless, he sacrificed the lamb and the blood that was shed covered their sin. That was grace in the Old Testament. Even in the Old Testament, there was a time in Exodus 33 when Moses came before God and said, God, I want to know who you are. I want to know this God. Who is this God? I want to go beyond looking at your gifts and what you have given us. I want to know your heart. That's why the Bible says that God showed his ways to Moses and his acts unto the children of Israel. He said, God, reveal yourself to me. I want to know who you are. This God I'm dealing with. And God said in Exodus 34, he said, Moses, do you want me to reveal myself to you? Moses said, yes. He said, okay, come tomorrow morning. Sanctify yourself. And Moses stood before the presence of God in Exodus 34. It gives us the account. And the presence of God came down the mountain. And God stood before Moses. And he introduced himself in verse 6. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. You want to know me, Moses? Well, I am full of mercy. I mean, is, is that the God they've taught us about? He said, I'm full of mercy. I am full of grace. I abound. Abound means I overflow. I abound in goodness and truth. Even the book of Hebrews calls his throne the throne of grace. It says come boldly before the throne of grace. The throne of God. The Father is not one you run away from. He said come boldly to me. Come boldly to the throne. It's a throne of grace. That you may obtain mercy. And find grace to help. In time of need. So our God is abounding in grace. You know a theology that says you should go sort yourself out. Before you come to God is flawed. Because it misses the essence of who God is. Yes, he wants us to live righteously and holy in this present age. And he wants us to live in a way that pleases him, a way of righteousness because sin destroys our lives. But his blessing over our lives is not determined by our action. It is determined by his grace. Because he's full of grace and full of mercy. And that was what Jesus revealed. Grace upon grace. Favor upon favor. Blessing upon blessing. Mercy upon mercy. That is the perfect expression of the nature of the creator. So what is grace? What is grace? Grace is his power freely made available to you. To meet your need and to achieve his purpose. 
Grace is the power of God. Freely. Everyone say freely. Freely made available to you to meet your need and to achieve his purpose. Now, who are the candidates of the grace of God? Who are those eligible for his power? Well, everyone. You know, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, the Bible says that by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. By grace you have been saved. You know, one thing a lot of people don't know is the word saved there does not just mean salvation from sin. The word saved comes from the root word soteria, which, which is an all-encompassing word. It speaks about salvation from sin. It speaks about healing in your body. It speaks about prosperity in your life. Nothing broken in your life. An abundant supply. Everything that God has, the, uh, has for you in Christ is in that word or encapsulated in that word salvation. So by grace, you have been delivered from sin. By grace, you have been healed. By grace, you receive sanctification. By grace, you receive power to walk holy. By grace, you receive wisdom. It is through the exercise of the power of God, freely made available to you, that you receive salvation in Christ. We need to understand the grace of God. Because without realizing it, a lot of us are struggling against the grace of God. God stands before you and says, I am available to you. I have my power available to you. And we're running the other direction saying, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not ready. I can't do it yet. I haven't sorted myself out. I can't come before God. He says, come to me as you are. You know, Jerry, David Jeremiah in his book, Captured by Grace, he made this statement. He said, such grace can only come from God. Grace is a gift unsought, unmerited, unlimited. For no matter what we have done, no matter the depth of our transgression, the darkness of our hearts, grace overrules them all. He pursues us relentlessly. He will not give up. And once he has captured us, he won't let us go. He says, by grace, you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. You know, I had a problem with this because I didn't really understand what a gift was. You know, when um, we were growing up at home, in my family, you know, we always had Christmas presents. And Christmas was always an exciting time for us at home. Christmas Eve, Myself, my brother, my sisters will be up, um, you know, very early um, that night or Christmas morning. And we'll go to the Christmas tree and we'll be rummaging at the bottom of the, of the tree for our gifts. Trying to open the gifts before dad and mom woke up. We love Christmas. But what I was taught was that you better behave well because if you don't behave well, you will not get a gift this Christmas. So I grew up with that mentality that, you know, I better sort myself out, otherwise I wouldn't get a gift. So when the Bible says that salvation is a gift of God, in my mind, I, I, you know, I was thinking, you know, it's something I need, to, I need to, you know, sort myself out to get. But how many of you know that a gift is not a reward? Yeah. 
A gift is not a reward. It is made available freely. He is a God full of grace. His power is available freely to lost humanity. He says, come boldly. Come to me all ye that are, that, that are heavy laden and that labor and I will give you rest. You cannot earn the grace of God. You cannot earn the operation of the power of God in your life. And we do this all the time, don't we? We do this all the time. After all, I gave. After all, I fasted. After all, I've given a good person. I expect God to act on my behalf. You can never earn the grace of God. And the good news also is that you cannot repel it. Look at um, the book of Romans chapter 11 verse 6. We need to understand the God that we serve. We need to understand our God as we approach him. Let our minds and our hearts be congruent with the revelation of the word that we see in the life of Jesus Christ. In the book of Romans chapter 11 verse 6. Oh, if you want a memory verse from this sermon today, let this be your memory verse. In Romans eleven six, when you go home, you need to meditate on this verse. He says, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. You know, the Bible says that by grace, you have been saved. By grace, you are delivered from sin. By the operation of the power of God, you are healed. By the operation of the power of God, you receive wisdom. This operation is free. Freely given to all who come to him by faith. And Paul says, if it is of grace, then it is not of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. What does that mean? You can't mix grace and works together. If it is done freely by the power of God, then it has nothing to do with you. And if it has anything to do with, you know, your character has brought it about that he deserves this grace, then don't call it grace because it means it is of works. But it says it is by grace that we stand. It is by grace that we are saved. It is through the operation of the power of grace. St. Augustine made this statement when meditating on grace. He said, God always pours grace into empty hands. You might say, you know, I'm not eligible for the blessing of God. You might say, I'm not eligible for anything from God. Look at my life. I have tried and I have failed. Well, St. Augustine, rev revealing the word of God says, grace is poured into empty hands. It is the hands of the empty. That are the perfect candidates for the operation of the power of God. For it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. You know we can try to dissect grace from every angle. But it's a little bit like dissecting. Like when we did uh, dissection in school. You might say you know I want to dissect this rat so I can see all the organs. The only problem with doing that is that when you dissect stuff like this, you know, to see all the organs, you lose the life of the rat, don't you? Yeah? So the best way to understand grace in all its living color is not just through definition, but by looking at the lives of people that were recipients of the grace of God. So we can understand this God 
that we serve. What I'm going to do today because of time, I'm going to take the life of a particular person for you to get a picture of God and how God relates with us and how he wants to, how he wants to connect with you and I and the basis on which you and I can stand in the presence of God. Look at the book of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's start from chapter 11. We know this story. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to skip a few of the verses because you know the story. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Oh, you are a candidate for the grace of God this morning. This is the story of David. David, who was taken from the shipfold and exalted by the grace of God into, into the position of authority. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1, it said it happened in the spring of the year. At the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Everyone say David remained at Jerusalem. We know what's coming, don't we? Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So he, he hung out a while and looked at the sight, right? So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So David sent, or so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. And David said, sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now we know the story. So I'm going to skip a few verses here. But David was bored. He, instead of going to battle, instead of having new goals, he was bored and he just decided to chill out for a while. Yeah, you need to be careful. I will just extend chill out periods. Yeah, you know, there are times to relax and, and to, to recuperate, right? But uh, don't, don't live a boring life, all right? There are always new goals to be had. But David was hanging out in Jerusalem, and he decided to go for a walk one evening. He saw a lady having a bath. You know, there's something called the one-second rule. You know, you can't, you can't avoid where your eyes look, but you can quickly, you know, look away, all right? When your brain processes what you're seeing, you look away quickly. But David beheld this woman and, um, you know, he decided that he wanted to sleep with her. So he, he sent people to fetch her. You know, they didn't just knock on the door and say that, you know, would you like to hang out with the king? They went to get her for him. All right. You need to understand Bible language. And he slept with her and she got pregnant. Now, as soon as she got pregnant, he sent for her husband. Now, his intention, and this is David, anointed man of God, priest, king and prophet. You know, in the Bible, there are just a few people that, that had both three roles, right? David was one of them. Anointed man. Like I said a few weeks ago, God's man of faith and, flower, I mean, faith and power. <laughs> anyway, so she called for Uriah, her husband. And it wasn't to say, Uriah, I'm so sorry. Look at what happened. I've messed up. He said, Uriah, you know, you, have, you are at the battlefront. Come relax a while. And, and, you know, go to your home. Go sleep with your wife. I mean, you are, you are in Jerusalem after all. He wanted to cover, he wanted to conceal his sin by covering it up. 
And Uriah slept at the door of his house. He didn't go in. He said, how in the world can I be sleeping with my wife when my colleagues are fighting at the battlefront? It shows you the, the character of this person. And when David saw that Uriah was not going to help him cover up the sin, he now sent a letter to the captain of his army, Joab. And in the letter, he gave the letter to Uriah to deliver. And in the letter, he said to Joab, you know, uh, put Uriah, when, there's, when the battle is hot, put Uriah in the, in the, uh, on the front lines and let him get killed. So Joab, like an obedient servant, when the battle was hot, he put Uriah at the front and then he instructed the rest of the army to step back. So Uriah was killed. And God saw what was going on. You know, nothing is hidden from the one with whom we have to do. So God sent Nathan to David. Look at the next chapter. Nathan went to David. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, and one rich and the other poor. The rich man was exceedingly, had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. This was an illustrative sermon, wasn't it? God was giving uh, David a chance to show some mercy. But look at David's response. Verse 5 says, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing. Because he had no pity. Wow. Be careful how you judge others. You know, it's an amazing thing. You know, I hear preachers preach all the time. And I see people who preach a message that is devoid of grace. You know, there's some guys I've heard preach. And you know, they are hard on stuff. I mean, we all need to be hard on sin. But we need to temper everything with grace. But then what amazes me is that when they fall into the same situation, they become very gracious to themselves. You know, with the same, the same, the same standard with which they condemn others, they excuse themselves. You know, Nathan said to David... You are the man. You are the one who is guilty. You know, thank God, God does not relate with us on the basis of justice, but on the basis of mercy. We're trying to understand grace. We're trying to understand the nature of God. God hates sin because sin destroys our life, but he's a God full of grace. You know, Nathan begins to talk to David about what is going to happen to him. Verse 12 says, For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. 
However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. Do you know that according to the standards of justice, David and Bathsheba were meant to be stoned to death. I mean, look at a couple of verses. We're going to come back to 2 Samuel 12. But I want you to look at two verses very quickly. Look at Exodus 21, verse 12, and Leviticus 20, 10. Look at verse 20, chapter 21, verse 12. It says, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be what? Be put to death. That was exactly what David did with Uriah. Look at Leviticus 20, verse 10. I mean, this was a law that David was very aware of. Leviticus 20 verse 10 says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely what? Be put to death. This was the standard of justice. But even in the Old Testament, we see God tempering his justice with grace, with mercy. He said, David, your sin has been put away from you. You will not die. And then beyond that, look at what happens. The child dies, and then Bathsheba has another child. Look at 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 30. Verse 30. Now, Bathsheba has a son, and she calls his name Solomon. And what God did was he sent Nathan back to David and said, David, I see you have a son called Solomon, I love that boy, and I'm going to name him Jedidiah, which means loved of the Lord. Now, can you imagine how Moses must have felt when Nathan came to his house and said, hey, I see Bathsheba has a child. This is the word of the Lord to you. Uh, I'm calling that son Jedidiah, meaning loved by me. Do you know how David would have felt? Can you imagine how David felt before that? I believe every time David went to the temple, after his first son died, he'll probably thought, you know what? I better be careful about how I speak in this temple. If I speak a word the wrong way around, the fire of God will come and consume me. He probably felt rightly um, under the, 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 uh, the guilt and the condemnation of God. But God wanted David to know that he had extended his grace towards him and his forgiveness towards him so that when Bathsheba had another child God sent his prophet and said you know what I love that boy I love that family showing again and reinforcing the power of his grace and not only that we see here in first Kings chapter 1 verse 30 when it was time for a king to succeed David in verse 10, it says, Just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, so I certainly will do this day. This is David speaking um, by the mandate of God. Out of all the, the wives of David, God chose Solomon to be his heir. That is grace. That is grace. It wasn't based on the fact that Solomon deserved it. It wasn't based on the fact that Bathsheba was the most virtuous woman. It was based on the fact that our God that we deal with is full of grace. He is full of mercy. He is full of favor. And that power is available to you to meet your need and to achieve his purpose. 
This was not God justifying sin. This was God saying, even in the midst of sin, my grace is sufficient for you. And then thousands of years later, when we read Matthew chapter 1. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is talking about the genealogy of the King Jesus Christ. The Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. The seed of David. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, the Bible is tracing the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. Right from Abraham, the genealogy is traced. In verse 5, it says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. You know, God didn't cover it up. He said, you, know what, you want to know who I am? I am God of Bathsheba. I am God that extends my grace to the person who is unlovely. I am God that makes my power available to them. He paused with, Mo, with Matthew and said, pause at that point. I want you to let them know that the genealogy of Jesus Christ has within it Solomon. But this is the boy that was born by the woman who had been the wife of Uriah. Wow. Is this the God you have heard about? And then later on we see that Jesus came from this, from this line. We're talking about the grace of God. You know, oftentimes we confuse the mercy and the grace of God. But very simply, mercy is God withholding the punishment that we fitly deserve. But grace is not just withholding the punishment. Grace is giving the most precious gifts instead. You know, it was mercy that caused God to forgive David and not kill him for committing adultery. But it was grace that now chose that particular line to be where Christ will come from. Do you see that? Mercy withheld due judgment. Grace chose Bathsheba, uh, chose Bathsheba in the ancestry of Christ. It was mercy that withheld the knife from the heart of Isaac. But it was grace that provided the ram in the thicket. It was mercy that runs to forgive the prodigal son. But grace threw a party and gave him a ring of sonship. It was mercy that bandages the wounds of the man that was beaten by thieves. But grace covers the cost of his full recovery. Mercy hears the cry of the thief on the cross. Grace provides paradise that very day. Mercy converts Paul on the road to Damascus. Grace calls him to be an apostle. Mercy closes the door to hell. Grace opens the door to heaven. Mercy withholds what we have earned. Grace provides blessings we have not earned. God said to Moses, Moses, I am full of mercy. I am full of grace. I abound in goodness and truth. But how do you and I receive the power of God's grace into our lives? How do we appropriate this power and walk in the grace of God? Look at Romans chapter 5 verse 2. Because like I said earlier, a lot of us are running away from the grace of God without realizing it. 
We eliminate ourselves as viable candidates. We don't see ourselves as eligible for the power of God. We don't see ourselves as eligible for the grace and the mercy of God. Because somehow, at some level, we see ourselves as not being deserving of it. I've got good news for you. You're not deserving of it. But it's not based on how much you deserve or how little you deserve of it. Because the operation of the grace of God has nothing to do with works. Because if it has to do with works, then it's not grace. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And the apostle Paul was a minister of grace. For the apostle Paul, throughout his life, he never forgot the fact that he was the one that was standing by when Stephen was being stoned to death. He never forgot it. He never forgot the fact that he was the person that was taking Christians and throwing them into jail and killing them. He never forgot that. And that is why Paul, at the end of his life, said, I am who I am by the grace of God. I'm not who I am by my, deser- by my deserving it, by my power. Because in my own wisdom, I persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. I am not deserving of this, but I am who I am by the grace of God. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God in my life. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And that is why the power of God could flow through the life of Paul unhindered. For he realized that his hands were empty. And God poured his power into those empty hands. A lot of times we realize our hands are empty. So we run away from God to fill our hands. And he says, come, my throne is the throne of grace. Come to me. Come to me because I love you. Come to me because my power is made available to you to restore you from sin, to heal your body, to fill your life with wisdom and provision. But without realizing it, a lot of times we frustrate the grace of God. We run away from the power of God. Look at Romans chapter 5 verse 2. How do we appropriate the grace of God in our lives? In Romans 5 2, the apostle Paul, it says through whom? We have access. Everyone say access. Is that through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He says we have access. We enter into the power of God. We enter into the grace of God by what? By faith. He said grace is this room. It's full of all this kind of stuff that God has provided. All things that pertain to life and godliness. God by his grace, his power has provided it. But to enter this room, there is a door. The door is open, but the door is called faith. As you enter through faith, you enter and receive everything grace has provided. You know, I learned to swim when I was quite old. Unlike most of you, I was in university when I learned to swim. I woke up one morning and, you know, I think I'd gone swimming, or well, I'd attempted to go swimming with some friends and I was sitting at the pool and they were swimming. And I decided that, you know what, enough is enough. I'm going to learn to swim. So I was, in, I was in university at the time. I was probably about 18 or so. And uh, I went to the university pool and I met a coach. And um, I said, you know, I want to learn to swim. And he taught me to swim. It took a while, but I got there eventually. But during that, during that process of learning to swim, Um, He told me about people who jump into the pool and don't know how to swim. I know guys are trying to impress girls, you know. 
uh, they think it is by, you know, by the, by the macho-ness that we swim. So he said they'll come to the pool, you know, with a, you know, the girlfriend, you know, and they have all these tight trunks and everything. And, you know, they'll just jump into the deep end. And you know how it is. You know, you're only, you're only macho for about a few seconds. And you realize that, you know, boy, we're going down. And he says what typically happens is they begin to struggle. And he said what you learn as a coach is that when people are struggling like that, you don't jump in. Because if you just jump in, uh, if you're not careful, you and them will go down underwater. Because, you, you know, rather than them just relaxing and, and knowing that, you know, you are there to save them. And just calming down so I can get them to the shallow end where they should have been in the first place. They will hold on to you. They'll pull you down. And <laughs> so he says what you do is you wait until they get to the point where, you know what, they've decided that we're dying. He said you wait until that point because that is the point where they calm down. Then you can jump in and then you can save them. Now, you know, that is how it is with the grace of God. The power of God is already available to you. But unless you walk by faith, you will not access it. While you are still struggling, while in your mind it's still about yourself and you're going to make it happen, you are struggling against the grace of God. You know, the Bible says, and we saw it in First, Second Peter chapter 1, it says his divine power has made available to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory of virtue. And through this, he has made available to us exceeding great and precious promises by, that by them we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He said his divine power, his grace, has been expressed through his promises. And by those promises, you will begin to experience this life that God has for you. So what you experience of the grace of God is determined by what you do with the promises of God. I'll say that again. What you experience, you know, the grace of God is already available. The Bible says his power has already made available to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His grace has already made it available to you because he's in love with you. He's full of mercy and grace. And he has expressed this grace in promises. Now, if you receive those promises and trust what he has said, and start acting by faith in what he has said, you will become a recipient of what he has made available to you. What do I mean by that? When you rest in his word. You know, what does the word of God say about wisdom? You might be dealing with some business issues right now, and you need the wisdom of God. Well, James 1.5 says that... If anyone lacks, lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Who gives what? Liberally. What does liberally mean? Freely, abundantly. And upbraids not, um, and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith, not wavering. 
So it means that when you go before God and say, God, I need wisdom in this area. I don't know how to deal with it. I need wisdom. I thank you because your word says, your promise says, that if I, I lack wisdom, I shall ask you and you'll give it to me. Lord, I thank you. I don't have to beg you for wisdom. I thank you because you have given it to me. I receive that wisdom right now by faith. Thank you. I have wisdom about this issue. I have wisdom about this issue. And when you walk away from there, you begin to say, I have wisdom about this issue. And you begin to expect that somehow, the right conversations will come your way. You'll read the right article. You'll wake up in the morning and you'll receive this inspired idea. you walk around believing and trusting in the word of God. That is accessing grace by faith. Are you with me? But if you pray about it, it's not about the praying about it. It is about you casting your care on the Lord when you pray. Trusting what he has said when you pray. So when you walk away from your prayer closet, you're not worrying about it anymore. Why? You are relaxed in the word, aren't you? You are leaning on the everlasting arms. But you can't relax and struggle at the same time. The Lord will just step out of the pool. He does step out of the pool. Are you with me? He's not going to be struggling with your... No, no, no. He says, let him ask in faith. He said, if, if, he, if he's double-minded, he will not receive anything. It's not like the Lord doesn't give anything because the grace is already given. But he won't be able to receive anything. Because you access this by faith. You trust his word. And you begin to rejoice because he has said it. And trust his word. And then the power of God will start being experienced in your life. Do you have sickness in your body? What do you, what do you need of the power of God today? 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who his own self, Jesus himself, bore our sins. In his body on the tree that we that that we've been dead to sin may live unto righteousness by whose stripes we were healed he took your sickness on the cross so you are meant to go before God and say God I believe your word on this matter thank you and you begin to thank him for it ignore the symptoms and just keep walking and thanking him for it and after a while the, your body will conform to the word of God your body will conform. Remember, all things were made by him. Without him, there is nothing that, was made, that is existing that was not made by him. Everything was made for him and by him. And everything responds to his word. Because everything has come from his word. The Bible says that he will supply your needs according to his riches and glory. By Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. God wants you to have an abundant supply. You need to trust that and not be afraid. You might be dealing with sin today. The Bible says that where sin abounded, grace much more abounds. The Moffat translation says, sin increased, but grace surpassed it 
by far. There is no sin. It does not matter how deep you've gone. There is no sin that the power of God is not able to forgive and restore you from. John's epistle, John, 1 John 1, 9. It said, if you will confess that sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The power of God's grace is available to you. Will you receive it? And stop struggling with it. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are struggling and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Trust in my power. Trust in my grace. I don't know where you are this morning. But I want us to spend some time just calling out to God. Stop struggling with God this morning. We stand in the presence of God today. His presence, his throne is the throne of grace. His power is abundant. His mercy is abundant towards you. He says, come to me as you are. Receive mercy and find grace to help. With every head bowed and every eye closed. I want you to talk to God this morning. Where do you need the power of God in your life? What do you need? What do you need? What do you need today? Is it forgiveness from sin? Is it restoration? You don't run away from God. You run towards him. He's the one with the solution. He's the one you've come from. He's the one you're going back to. You run towards him. He's the one that is the giver of grace. Where are, where are you this morning? What do you need from God? Is it healing in your body? Stand before God and thank him and say, God, I thank you for your grace. That has provided healing. I receive it into my body right now. For the Bible says that surely he has borne my griefs and carried my sorrows. What do you need? Is it wisdom you need today? Ask him. Receive it by faith. And walk away from here expecting that you'll have the wisdom you need. His grace is available to you. You might be here this morning and say, Pastor, I don't know Jesus. But I want to know him. I used to think I had to fix myself up first before coming. But now I know I can come to him as I am. For his grace is poured into empty hands. Lord, I need, I need Jesus this morning. If you're here, I would like to pray for you. You want to know Jesus. He's real. He's real. He's real. He's real. You have come from him. You are going back to him. He's real. If you're here this morning, you want me to pray for you. Just lift your hand up boldly. I want to pray for you right now. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking around, everyone praying. I see those hands. 